Good morning. Uh, our scripture reading today is from Psalm 139. And since we don't have brochures, I'll give you a second to find that in your Bible. Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise and you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God! Away from me, you bloodthirsty men! They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offense way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And this is God's words to us this morning. I was going over the sermon yesterday here I probably lingered at the office a little longer than I sometimes stay on Saturdays because I had to go back home to the dark. But uh, um, I finished going over it, kind of preaching it in my own head, and, and I, I went, oh, I like that sermon. Um, <laughs> and then I realized it's not the sermon, it's the psalm. And I said, Lord, I, don't, like, I get to preach this? I heard... Somebody sent me a message a couple days ago that there's a reality show in the United States now called So You Think You Can Preach. 
so I might have to travel and, and sign up for that, but, um, but I'd be eliminated quickly. Uh, every, I think it was Labor Day weekend, but my memory doesn't always work properly. I think it was Labor Day weekend. Each year, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, a local radio station, CFMI, I think it's still around, they played what they called the top 500 songs of all time each Labor Day weekend. And I would uh, get my cassette, my blank cassette tapes out and tape as many of those songs as I could um, for the car or whatever. And the top 500, I don't know who chose the top 500 of all time, but, but number one tended to be each year, though they tried to mix it up, tended to be Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Uh, but in the top five every year always was a song by the police, a band called The Police, called Every Breath You Take. You know what? Some of you could sing it. Every breath you take, every move you make. Doesn't it sound terrible when somebody says, every breath you take, every move you make. It has to be, every breath you take, every move you make, every smile you fake, every claim you stake, I'll be watching you. It just keeps going like that. Every single day, everything, 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 just keeps going. And it says, oh, can't you see you belong to me? How my poor heart aches for every breath you take. Always in the top five. Because the song was received as a love song. Now, Sting, from the police, that's not his original name, but it is his name now and was then. He used to be an English teacher, but he went to great lengths to point out that the song was not written as a love song. The song was written as a song of obsession and kind of of stalking. You won't be able to get away from me. But people received it as a love song and just made it one of their favorites. This psalm today, Lord, where can I get away from you? Is it a love song? Sounds like it. It is a positive statement. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But this morning, I want to, like that corrective to every breath you take, but eventually the songwriter said, okay, it's a love song, even though it wasn't written that way. I want to take Psalm 139 that many of you would know, I hope, and I want to turn it a little bit. I'm not trying to make it something it isn't, because this is there, but you often don't think of it this way. But we're going to listen to the psalm this morning as a psalm of judgment. Oh, great. I took this beautiful psalm and turned it into judgment. And some of you are like, finally, Todd's preaching on judgment. Didn't expect it now. We'll get there. But first, there are the images in the psalm. And in a world in which we've lost um, to a great deal the ability to, to really take a look at something comprehensively, to listen to images, metaphor, ideas. Um, I mean, everything is just quantified now and monetized. Money, what's the use of this? Um, what does this psalm mean? Well, if you want to know what this psalm means, you have to allow the imagery to speak to you. The metaphor, the constant metaphor in the psalm. Every verse is a metaphor. And you can't get away from these images that tell you you can't get away from God, which in the end, the psalmist will declare is a good thing. Even to the point of saying, surely the darkness will cover me and the light become night around me. But verse 11 says, even the darkness, though, is not dark to you. So let me give you a little bit of direction here and say, 
How do you learn and listen to that? The darkness, of course, is a metaphor, except it could be actual darkness. But stop here for a moment and consider in your life, what darkness do you anticipate as the greatest threat that could happen to you after today or later today or whatever it is? What darkness do you fear? And don't tell me you don't fear darkness. Could you lose everything? Would it be your health? Would it be something that's happening to a loved one? What is it that you would say in your life, no, this would be darkness to me? Because what the psalmist David does here is he anticipates the darkness. If you look at how the the psalm is written, he says, if I were to cover myself in darkness, if the darkness were to cover me. So he's, he's imagining it and anticipating it. So you can do the same thing. If you were to look at the darkest place you could be in your life. Now, that's why this is metaphor, because it doesn't just mean a power outage. It means if I, Lord, if I went to that place that I feared for so long and was covered up in darkness, so much so that I couldn't see your light, I couldn't feel it, I would be struggling with whatever it might be, depression, um, just done. If I was to that darkest place, now the psalmist says, David says, but for you that place isn't darkness. Even that is light to you. Your light would be even there, even though I couldn't maybe perceive it. You can learn and be formed and grow in faith from the images in this psalm. But you have to read it and you have to listen and you have to say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. What I just did there wasn't some magical trick that I just listened to the word and took it in my own life and my own experience. Lord, what darkness would I fear? And then here's what I do. Would you be even there, Lord? Have you ever heard ministers pray prayers at the end of a service that are summaries of their sermon? I remember growing up, and I won't say where, how, but, well, I'll say it because it's years ago. Alan Palmer, who was one of the ministers here years and years ago, he used to pray. When I was a kid, I was like a teenager growing up, and I'd come to church. And Alan Palmer, at the end of every service, his prayer would be a complete summary of the, of the sermon, which is effective, I guess. Um, but it's not an altogether uncommon practice. And usually it's, not necessarily in Alan's case, but usually it's with uh, sermons that are highly memorable. So they're like three points, and each point starts with a P. And then when the minister's praying at the end, he says, Oh, dear Lord, we know that it's our pride that keeps us from you. And then starts praying about the pride, and then a minute later goes, But we know, dear Lord, that you offer us peace. There's the second P. If we would just prepare our hearts, oh Lord. And so there you got the sermon again, and you realize after that, that sermon could have been like four minutes long. That was a long prayer, but it was a short sermon. Here in the psalm, it is not that direct, that teaching point, but the prayer is interesting with the imagery and the metaphors that are used, because David is praying to God. So you see, just like there's two forms... Because I was always wondering when I was a kid growing up and I was early in my faith, is he praying to God or is he talking to me? I think he might be talking to me. Because God doesn't need to know the three Ps. But anyway, David, so what I'm saying is I'm not condemning that because David does the same kind of thing in the psalm. He's praying to God, but he's also speaking to himself and reminding himself of the truth. 
And he's also reminding God of the way things are, though God knows. And at one point in the psalm, he actually prays or talks to those he considers evil people. He moves from talking to God to talking to these bloodthirsty men. But here are the images, just some of them. So he's praying, and he seems to remind God, but he's speaking to himself too. You search out my path, my comings and goings in the NIV. In the ESV, you search out my path and my lying down. Here's how you know me, God. My path, which means my winding days. Those worries and anxieties and things that I hold. You search those out. You know them. And you know my stopping. Dear God, you know me in the moments of my going and my reaching and my stretching and my fear, but you know me in the moments of my rest and my lying down. You know me in my anxiety and you know me in my peace. Verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. How is, is that in the, um, what is it in the ESV? You know it all together. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. This moves us into considering the sovereignty of God. What does it mean that God knows all? Does God know the words you're about to speak? Does he know the ones I'm about to speak? He definitely knows the ones I'm about to speak because I spoke them yesterday in the office to myself. What does it mean that God knows everything, goes ahead of us? Well, first of all, we'll never understand God's sovereignty because God is above time and we can't get above time. God exists apart from time. And he knows me, and he knows you. You can see it in the, in the first verse of the psalm. In the ESV, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The tense is not present there. You have searched me and known me, but then you know when I sit. And when, see how the, even the psalmist plays with the tenses here? You know me, and you have known me. God is above time. So he knows me now, but he knows me 40 years ago. In that moment that I remember as a child praying in my father's house. And he knows five or two or 40 years from now. How do we hold this sovereignty with the concept of free will? Which I strongly trust as well, that, this, that I have free will. What's helpful for me, and I read this in a commentary, I'll, I'll use the same phrase in a few weeks from now in the fall sermon series. So um, if you don't remember it now, that's okay. You can get it later. Well, I'll show you this in a second. What's helpful for me is, is that the proper way to understand it would not be to say, God knows what I will do tomorrow. Do you think God knows what you will do tomorrow? Okay, yes, God's sovereignty, but how does that line up with free will? The problem with us understanding God's sovereignty is, again, we can't get out of A, B, C linear time. God does. So more accurately is this. God knows what I did tomorrow. Does that make sense? But that's what I believe. Because he stands above time. And he holds my life in his hands, the things that will happen a year, two years, 40 years, God willing, from now. With, with what for me counts as a memory of when I was six years old. I can't get above time, but he is. Now hear the psalm again. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. 
What a, what a beautiful statement. We live in a world now where so much of our lives can be quantified. Fitness, food, sleep. Some people in here, I, I don't know any for sure, because Kim's away. and Kim and Jen and Kaz and Amanda are away in Bellingham at my mom's place. They went away for a weekend, and they have no power down there either. Um, so they're feeling our pain. Uh, I know Kim has one, one of these Fitbits. Anybody have a Fitbit here? You're wearing one right now? So you could tell us, you don't need to, but you could tell us how many steps you've done so far today. Do I want to know? Okay, sure. Uh, pause here. Sermon's going to be longer, but it's because we're doing this. James has done 1,185 steps so far today. You can quantify life, right? You can keep all of this detail, maybe on your steps and your diet and your exercise, your mood. And you could put this together with uh, those of you who spend lots of time on social media with what you like and the things that you've posted. And if you could gather up all that information about yourself and somebody could hold that information, of course, you know the question I'm going to ask you. Would the person who holds that information know you? I mean, in some ways they, they, they could act as if they did. But would they know you? You see what the psalmist is saying here. You have searched me and known me. You know me. But this isn't just this God of data. Rather, you hem me in. Behind and before. And then the quick refrain. So you see see what David is doing here in this prayer. And in this speaking to God and reminding himself... You hem me in behind and before. And then David is thinking to himself, ah, such knowledge is, I can't even fathom that. What does it mean that God is always before me and always behind me? You hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty, too high for me to attain. I'll never understand it. But if you stay with the images and listen and take each one and read it over and over again, and as I said, if you say, come Holy Spirit, God will speak to you and teach this song to you for your life today. And then David does this amazing thing. He moves now to the outermost edges of all of creation, the whole of the universe as he would have understood it at the time. We have learned much more since then about the scope of the universe, right? And you can say, we are just this tiny speck. The earth is this tiny speck. And the universe goes this far and this far and this far and so much further than we ever would have thought before. We can seem so big in this life, but if you pan out from your life to the neighborhood, to the community, right? To the province, to the country, and you just keep panning out like that. And all of a sudden the earth is this small place. Sometimes people can think that Christian faith wants to deny the scope of of the natural world around us, the scope of time. But that's not where the primary difference lies between uh, Christian faith and what we might call non-faith or, or you know, not believing in God. David gets to what the distinction is in this psalm. He takes himself in his prayer and his imagination to the outermost edges of all creation. So for him, the way he describes it in his understanding at the time, if I could rise on the wings of the morning. Now, one of the great things, when you have a power outage, and uh, it happened in our house at noon, but what, it's getting dark now around 8.30, 9. It was pretty much dark by 8.30 in our house. 
and then you're doing the candles and you're doing everything else and you're going to bed in the dark and you, well, you, it, but it's really dark. And, but then when I woke up this morning, uh, it was already getting light. The wings of the morning. If I could take the wings of the morning and I could go to the far side of the sea, which means the furthest place I could get, and I could settle there as far as I could go in all the universe, here comes now the difference between faith and non-faith. It's not that as Christians we have to deny the scope of creation in the natural world or the scope of time, which some Christians battle often on that front. And to me, it's not the, the prime place of battling. And David's not going to battle it here and say, well, let's, we'll tell you how old creation is and how big it is. and how his, his main distinction is to say, if I went to the farthest edge of all the natural world, so now you can imagine what that might be. For most of you, you would imagine, I guess, outer space, right? Can you imagine right now finding yourself the furthest reaches of our universe? The one thing you know you would be there is this, right? Alone. Now David's going to bring the distinction in. If I went that far, even there, you would be with me. Your right hand would hold me. Or I think it's the NIV, or the hold me fast, strong. Even there. Beautiful psalm because now he's going to switch and he's going to move from the outer edge of all the natural world to the unknown parts of his own body, his own life. You've seen this. What is it? What is that? Uh, you've seen movies that have like the big, you, you travel far out in space, but then there's the one where like it's almost like a spaceship inside someone's body with the blood cells and the things you can never see. I, I heard, a, I guess it was a podcast or something a couple of days ago or it was on CBC radio or something. It was a neurosurgeon. I don't even remember what the topic was. I just heard a few minutes. But one of the things that stood in my mind when he was talking was he said, I can do brain surgery on people. And, of course, they can stay awake during different procedures, different brain surgeries. And he said, we can have a monitor that can show actually where I'm, you know, manipulating inside of their brain. And he said, I can say, I say to people, do you want to watch it? And guess the answer for like 99% of people, no, thank you. And he says, so the rare instance when someone says, sure, I'd love to see that, crazy people. He says, I tell, the first thing I tell them is, do you know that you are among the only people in the history of the world who have ever seen into your own brain? Look what David does here. He goes from the outermost edges of all of creation to, Lord, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. You know me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know the things that I could never know on the farthest reaches of all creation, and you know the things that I could never know in my own life, my own body. You formed me, you knitted me together, and you see and you saw every one of my days, even before one of them was or is. And now you move to the judgment. I told you it would be a psalm of judgment. This harsh turn from verse 16 to verse 19 with a brief theological, philosophical reflection in between. David's going to ask himself now again, how precious are us, God, but he's talking to himself, how precious to me are your thoughts. He keeps getting blown away by all this consideration of how 
vast God is and how intimately God knows him. So he says then, God, I can't even count your thoughts. I'm going to try to count them. Everything in our world is counting now. I'm going to try to count them, and I'm going to get the biggest computer in the history of the world, and I couldn't count them then, I guess, could I? Count your thoughts. They're, they're more than the grains of sand. And then this turn in verse 19, which is striking, it completely changes the tone of the whole psalm. Now, and I wouldn't understand it except I know you and I know me, and I know how quickly we move from praying to God and focusing on God to all oh, those stupid people over there. And David basically goes from this, this theological lofty consideration to, oh God, slay the wicked. He's still living an actual day like you're living today. He had concerns about the future when he wrote this psalm, what would happen the next day and the next day. And David actually had people in his life who wanted him killed. Oh Lord, slay the wicked. He addresses, now he changes from speaking to God to speaking to these people. You bloodthirsty men or you men of blood, get away from me. And then quickly goes back to God. And as if to inform God of his case for action. You know what, God? Now he's going to be like in a, before a judge in a courtroom. These guys are really terrible because they speak against you. They can't stand you. And I hate those who hate you, Lord. I hate them with complete hatred. They're enemies to me. Now, there's some judgment in the psalm, right? I'm going to call this... Um, Juvenile judgment. And it's present in every one of our lives. It's just that some of us have not outgrown it. It's still the prime form of judgment that we think we're supposed to exercise in the world. Understand what's wrong with other people. And how they need to change. And how I'm with God and those other people aren't with God. And I'm going to make this bold statement. Well, actually, I'm going to make a statement. You can decide whether it's bold or not. It's like when somebody says, you know, I'm not meaning to be mean, but... And the one thing you know they're going to say next is probably something mean. Um, I'm going to make this bold statement, but actually you have to decide whether it's bold. And the statement is this. In our lives and in Christian faith, we often have not grown past juvenile judgment. We have a long way to go in a, as a Christian church. We stop, we stop with knowing what other people need. Get them. They're the problem. Or we're more friendly about it. We say things like, people sure need to hear. We mean, of course, other people. Be warned. David, in this kind of, he's just spewing this out, He's pointing at others. Now, might David be right about his criticism of other people? Absolutely. On Wednesday, there was another shooting, and I say another shooting in the United States. Not that long ago, there was the shooting in the church in Charleston. And now this TV crew. I happen to log on to this thing. This, this is how the world works now. And it is actually true. And I scrolled down in this article, and the, and the thing, the video started. I didn't see the video of the guy actually shooting the people, but I saw that one of the videos that stations didn't want you to see of the guy holding the gun and walking up, and it was horrible. Or on Thursday, they discovered in Austria a truck full, but the truck wasn't big. Did you see pictures of it? This truck, just it would carry food, and in the back of the truck, there were 71 dead and decomposing 
bodies, migrants trying to get to Europe. And human traffickers and these people are dead. Kids, men, women, children. I, I'm not, please don't think that I'm blind to the darkness and the evil in the world. I hope you think I'm smarter than that. Get them. Do away with them. I hate those who hate you. I hate them with a complete hatred. Maybe you could add to your concern that the world seems to be getting further away from God. And why are these people bringing us further away from God? And maybe that bothers you more than 71 people dying in the back of a truck. But regardless, you're able to say, and I'm able to say, if only they would straighten themselves out. Am I saying this is totally unnecessary judgment in the world? No, I'm not. David, I think, was probably right. And we might be right in our calls at what's wrong with other people in the world. But listen, not every expression in the Psalms is laudable. If you quote scripture and you quote scripture improperly, you could get the improper message. There's a psalm that says, I wish, I wish that, that their babies would be thrown and dashed against the rocks and killed. Here's a bold statement for you. That's not Christ-like. Listen to the scriptures. We must come to terms with this juvenile judgment. People are still rejecting the Christian faith because many people see Christians as stuck in what they call judgmentalism, but what I would call juvenile judgmentalism. Famous writer, Christian writer, and Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, wrote a powerful, scathing chapter in one of his books. He died a number of years ago, uh, but his, this book was on contemplation and prayer, and the chapter was called The Moral Theology of the Devil, which is a very bold statement. He's saying, here's, here's, some, here's how the devil's theology works in the Christian church. Tough to hear. So you take John 3.16 and you hear God so loved the world. But what Merton will present is that the devil works by getting people, particularly religious people, to hate others. And if evil can get us to hate other people, then that theology of the devil can kick in. And this theology will focus on the sin of other people. So here's what Merton will say. The devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. Isn't that curious? He sets up what's set up in their mind is a system by which God is wronged and must be satisfied. Then the devil lets people spend the rest of their lives meditating on the intense sinfulness of other people. Lord, slay the wicked. You cannot love God Hear this, please, every one of you in here. Me too. You cannot love God and hate people. You cannot love God and hate people. How do I know? Jesus Christ, that's how. Merton continues, It sometimes happens that men who preach most, and he's writing in the 60s, so all the pronouns are male, it sometimes happens that men who preach most vehemently about evil and the punishment of evil so that they seem to have nothing else on their minds except sin are really unconscious haters of other men. They think the world does not appreciate them and this is their way of getting even. In the devil's theology, the important thing is to be absolutely right and to prove that everybody else 
or maybe most other people, are absolutely wrong. Now, of course, the knee-jerk reaction that would be the wrong one would be to say, yeah, I hate judgmental people. Get them. (laughs) Which, by the way, is what many, what happens over and over again. I see it in the church. I see, yeah, I'm so sick of that judgmentalism in the church. I hate it. Those terrible people. You know, we, we need some maturity in both parts. This is juvenile judgment. The, the way I think of it in my mind, and I'll put it for, for Sutherland Church, it's toddler playground stuff. It's like a kid playing in a sandbox or at the playground and just yelling out, Mine! And what does the parent do at that point? I mean, now it's remarkable because some parents stick up for their own kid who just yelled at the other kid. But others go, no, you can't do that and take the toy back from their child and say, Right? What would it be like if, now don't worry, I'm not going to do this because I wouldn't be minister here anymore, probably. But if every time one of you came to me telling me what other people needed to change in the church or in your family, I just said, oh, that's toddler playground stuff again. You don't want that. I'm not saying David's wrong in this juvenile judgment. I'm just saying... We can't stop there. And now as we move to close, look at what David does. Look at the shift. If the psalm ended here, I'd have to read another psalm. Not every psalm contains the whole truth of the fullness of God. This psalm contains a lot and definitely points to Jesus Christ. The psalm had moved from the outermost edges of creation to the to the inner life and it would be like and this is where I see Jesus in the psalm as well Lord even you know even my innermost workings even my sin Lord would it be possible that you could be with me even even despite my sinfulness and what's the answer to that it's yes of course because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice God with you even there And now look at what David does. He makes the turn from juvenile judgment to what I'm going to call mature judgment. Verse 23. Not arguing for it's all good. You know, don't don't ever, just pretend everything's okay. I'm not arguing for that. And David doesn't do that either. Rather that I could see that I am lazy and self-centered and ignorant and I can easily think the worst of others and you can too. And so often my own comfort is more important to me than somebody else's actual life. We need to grow up and we need to grow and David makes the turn and he shows us how to grow from juvenile judgment to mature judgment or at least he shows us what it looks like because after this slay them and do away with them David ends this poem with Search me, oh God, and know my heart, and see if there are any anxious or grievous or wicked thoughts in me. David does what you're so afraid to do. He literally lays himself out on the ground before God and says, now I'm not even thinking about those others anymore, God. Search me. And know me. After railing against others, he puts himself in a place to be measured. 
When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. David wakes up, puts himself in the place to be measured. Even in the darkness of your own sin, God has not abandoned you. Jesus Christ has life for you, God with us. He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. David sees this, puts himself in a place to be measured, and says as the psalm ends, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a good psalm. May we know God's presence always in our lives. May we know that God is presence even when we can't perceive God is present even when we can't perceive it. And may we grow from juvenile judgment to mature judgment. If we could do this, oh people, if we could do this. I mean, nobody would believe it. Those people are more focused on trying to grow themselves than telling what everybody else what's wrong with them. I've never seen anything like that before. But the psalm gives us a picture of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, the beauty of this psalm is, is, is uh, vivid, striking. I am afraid of being on the outermost edge of all creation, being alone in the universe. I'm afraid of the darkness that even when I'm comfortable, even when I'm just surrounded by blessings and strength and joy, I can sometimes just think about darkness. Thank you for what this psalm says, reminds me of. And I would pray, Heavenly Father, that I would move and continue to move from a juvenile sense of judgment to a more mature sense of judgment. So I say before you, Lord, here, and I offer the same for others, search me, O God, and know my heart, know my thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me Actually, I know the answer already. There is. But I know this as well, Heavenly Father, that the only safe place to consider my own sin is in You. And so I want to do it. And I want to grow. And I want to trust in my Lord Jesus Christ more and more. Build us as Your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Remember, there's prayer after every service. If you want to pray through something or respond to or take one of these images or have somebody help you in prayer, uh, there's prayer at the back or you can always stay where you are and pray as well.